We, uh, we're in a series right now uh, on the book of Acts, and uh, we're calling the series Praxis, walking through the story of the early church. Oh, and my na- if, if we haven't met, my name's Tim. I'm on staff here. I'm a, a teaching pastor. I get to speak and unpack scripture often on Sunday mornings, and, uh, and so we're, we're going to continue uh, through the story of the early church this morning. There was a, uh, there's a Roman poet lived in the first century B.C., uh, before the birth of Christ. His name was Ovid. And Ovid, one of the things he did was he collected uh, Roman, Greco-Roman myths, and he retold their stories. And there's this one uh, legend that Ovid uh, told, uh, set in the region of Phrygia. I think we have a map. Uh, here's Phrygia. Do you see? Uh, this is modern-day Turkey and Greece. Well, this is what we call today modern-day Turkey and Greece. And uh, kind of on the... On the what do you call that? The fist punching out on the right side in the middle of it. You see that region called Phrygia there? Nod your heads. Yes. All right. That's, that's, so there's a legend about this area. And in, in Phrygia, there's this tree on a hillside. It's actually a combination of two different types of trees kind of wound together, an oak tree and a linden tree. And there's a legend about it. And Ovid says it goes like this, that one day... Zeus and Hermes, uh, Zeus the chief god, Hermes the chief messenger god, they decide, here they are, Zeus has got a burly beard and Zeus, Hermes wears wings on his head, um, he's different, and, uh, and so they, they decide to go down, disguise themselves and go down to the re- region of, of Phrygia. So they disguise themselves and they go down, they knock on a thousand doors, so they're, they're, they're disguised, knocking on doors, it's kind of their own little Halloween, and they're knocking on doors and they're asking for food and shelter. And uh, all these people, uh, they, they say no, they're inhospitable, they say no, we're not going to give you food, we're not going to invite you, and we're going to lock our doors. No. Zeus and Hermes are very upset by this. They continue on and finally they come to this little uh, uh, like um, stick shack, very Poor elderly couple live there, Balkis and Philemon. Balkis and Philemon, they invite these mystery men in, and uh, they invite them in to eat, and so they sit down, and here they are. Um, I, apparently, Balkis and Philemon weren't caught off guard by the man with wings on his head, and they come in, and they're giving them food, and, or shirtless, and their and they're, they're, they're food, and, you know, here's, take a blanket, have this to eat, and, and Balkis and Philemon, they're, they're quite old, and, oh, by the way, Balkis is the woman's name, I had to look that up, and, um, and then Philemon is the husband, and interestingly, there's a Philemon in the New Testament who might be named after this letter. But that's kind of a, a footnote. So, um, so they're, they're feeding them, and the wine doesn't run out. It keeps refilling and refilling. And so Balkis Philemon, they get suspicious. Are these, are these gods? These, these must be gods who are with us. And, uh, and, and they're, like, they're, they're, they're like, oh, these are the gods come down to earth. And, uh, and Zeus and Hermes say, okay, you got us. We are, we are. <laughs> yeah. and, and then Zeus and Hermes say, um, now we knocked on all these doors, but no one else invited us in. And so we have decided, in response, we are going to destroy everyone. A little bit of a reaction. But so they say, flee up the mountain. So Bal- they run up the mountain. So Baucus and Philemon, they run up the nearest mountain. They get on the mountain. They turn around. They look back. And the entire area has been flooded. The only thing left standing is their, is their little house, which has been turned into a golden temple. And Zeus and Hermes come up the mountain and talk to them and say, you now can live in this golden temple. And you get one wish. We will, because you gave us food and shelter, you have whatever wish you want. And they said, well, we'd like to wish for more wishes. They said, no, you can't do that. That, that didn't really happen. Um, they said, we would like to live to an old age and then die at the same time. And, okay, your wish is granted. And so they lived to an old age. And then when they died, they both turned in. One turned into an oak tree. One turned into a linden tree. And because they loved each other, they wound around. And now that is the legend of the, the two trees wound together. 
the story of Balchus and Philemon. So with that legend in mind, I'd like to invite you now to turn to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be in Acts 14 this morning, starting in verse 8. Acts, as we've talked about before, the story of the early Jesus movement, the story of how uh, this rural Galilean uh, Jewish Jesus movement, uh, how after Jesus' resurrection, how it spread out to the non-Jewish world and how the story of Jesus was announced all the way to kind of the, the urban center of the Gentile, the non-Jewish world, Rome itself. And it's the story of how this happened. We're at a point in the story now where um, these two guys, Barnabas and Paul, we've also talked about him, he's also known as Saul, Barnabas and Paul have been sent out on a journey. They've been sent from the church in Antioch. A couple weeks ago we talked about the church in Antioch. They've been sent out on this journey to to go to the, the Roman world, the non-Jewish world, and tell people about Jesus. And so we have a map We have a map here of their journey. So Paul and Barnabas are on this journey. They start over on the right there, the east in Antioch. And then you can follow the arrows. They go down to the island Cyprus. They turn up to the northwest, go to Pamphylia, up into the inland of Asia Minor, Antioch, and then cut over to Iconium. Um, and then down to Lystra. At Iconium, they ran into some uh, Jews who didn't believe in Jesus, who were very angry at them telling the story of Jesus, and who were planning on stoning them to death. And so Paul and Barnabas find out about this. They flee Iconium down south to Lystra. This Lystra is this little, little rural backwater town. It's like this market rural village. Maybe 3,000 men, women, children live there. It's, it's, it's a day's walk from a major road. It's kind of the middle of nowhere. So they're, they're at Lystra, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. Oh, and just by the way, if this kind of stuff is interesting, the map and the background of the acts and all that, Next Sunday night, we're going to do a slideshow on this whole region. Myself and a few others got to go to Turkey and Greece this last springtime. So we're going to do a bunch of this. It's in your bulletin, but uh, that's just, just for you to be aware of. So um, they're in Lystra now, and uh, I want to pick up in verse 8. They're in this country town of Lystra. Acts 14, 8. This is what happens. In Lystra, there, was a, there sat a man who was lame. He had, he had been that way from birth and had never walked. He's probably begging at the city gate, that kind of thing. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. goes on. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. All right, so you see what's happening here? You see what's happening here? So uh, that they, Paul does this. He does this miracle. He combines. Oftentimes, you see this in um, in the the stories when people talk about the words. They 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 talk with words about the good news of Jesus. They often show the love of Jesus with actions. Here, in this case, it was miraculous. Sometimes it's not miraculous, but it's the words and deeds together. So th- th- this happens. This man's healed, and everyone and all the people there are like the gods have come to be with us. Zeus and Hermes. 
And they say this in the Lyconian language, which Paul and Barnabas didn't know. They just knew the international trade language of Greek. And so they're standing there, and all these people are so excited, ah, running around. And Paul and Barnabas are probably thinking, all right, look how excited they are. We're doing pretty well. This is off to a good start. Until the priest of Zeus shows up with a bull with wreaths around its neck. And you're, you probably think, wreaths? Well, here's a, here's a, a, a relief um, from back in that day. And basically, oftentimes when you took bulls to be sacrificed, you put a wreath around its neck. You dressed it up. Bulls probably were quite afraid of ornamental shrubbery. But um, So they're bringing the bull there, and when they see the bull, Paul and Barnabas, they realize what's going on. That Oh, no. This is a serious misunderstanding. This is not what we want to have happen. And so this is how they react in, uh, in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past... He let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then you remember, remember when we were starting out and I was showing you the journey that in the town they were at Iconium, right before they're at Lystra. In Iconium, there's a group that um, had plotted, uh, that had plotted to try and stone them to death. Well, these folks show up next. So they're, they're talking to the crowd, don't, don't sacrifice to us. And then in verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, and I love this next part, after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. He, just, he got up, he went right back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. He didn't run away, he didn't strike back in violence, he actually went back to the city and uh, what ends up happening, he ends up going back to Lystra multiple times over. They go to, so they leave, he goes back in the city in Lystra, and then they go, end up going to Derby. We have a map here. From Derby, it's interesting, because it would have just been a 120-mile journey in the red. You see that? Over to Tarsus, his hometown. So when he's in Derby, he's 120 miles from his hometown. He could just go back home, kind of, he's, you know, this is getting a little too hard. But instead, what they decide to do is, Paul and Barnabas, instead of just going back home, they retrace their entire 800-mile route. They go back to Lister, back to Iconium, back to Annie, all these places where people had plotted against him. He goes back there to continue telling them about Jesus and to strengthen those people who had decided to begin following Jesus. They were very committed. They were passionate about Jesus and about, about communicating to people who did not yet know Jesus. Now, I'd like to make a couple 
observations? What might we take away uh, from this uh, from this story, from this account from Paul and Barnabas's life? This, interestingly, kind of as you're looking at the the story of Acts, the story of the early Jesus movement, this, up to this point, mostly when people have been sharing about Jesus, they've done it either to Jews or to Gentiles, non-Jews, who were already familiar and believing in the Hebrew Scriptures, the God of the Bible. So they're, they're talking to Jews or Gentiles who are called God-fearers who already believe in the Hebrew Scriptures. Here is one of the first encounters where people are sharing about Jesus to folks who have zero, zero shared background, zero shared worldview, a totally different set of beliefs. So here, we, here the story of Jesus is encountering a group of people with a whole different set of beliefs. And I want to look at... As, as Paul encounters these people with a whole different set of worldview, a whole different set of beliefs, I want to look at how Paul did that. And I, want to, and I think there's two things that uh, we can notice in how Paul engaged with these people with a whole different set of beliefs. One, Paul maintained a big circle of who's. And Paul maintained, secondly, a big circle of what's. A big circle of who's and a big circle of what's. Now, maybe you're thinking, who and what are you talking about? <laughs> Let me explain. I see, I see Paul um, uh, uh, keeping a big circle of who's. You know, he has a big circle of who's. He, has a, he, he maintains relationships with all different people, even though he sees the world differently than them. Oftentimes, uh, you've probably experienced this, when two people um, see fundamental things differently, they have fundamental disagreements about God, about what's right and wrong, oftentimes one reaction is to cut off the who, to shrink the circle of who's. To say, say if we're going to see that, I'm just not going to talk to them anymore. I'm not going to listen to them anymore. I just, or to belittle them and fight with them so they just leave your life. To shrink the who's. So that then the, the, you have a small circle of who's. And your who's just involve people who see the world the same way as you do. Um, reading things that you already agree with. Listening to things you already agree with. Having a small circle of who's. But Paul doesn't do this. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't go to Lister and say, oh, you, you all... You all you believe in Zeus and, and Hermes? I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. Or Paul doesn't say, I'm never coming back here again. Paul engages with them. He maintains a relationship with them. He goes back there over and over again. Paul maintains a big circle of who's, who he is in relationship with. And I think it raises the question for our lives. As a follower of Jesus, how big is our circle of who's? How big is the circle of whose we are in relationship with, we're willing to be in relationship with? Paul has a big circle of whose. Paul also has a big circle of what's. A big circle of what's. Another thing that happens sometimes when people... Two people disagree uh, very strongly about things. They see fundamental things about God, about morality, about what it means to be human. They see them differently. One thing they'll do is they'll just shrink the what's. What we're willing to talk about. What I say I believe. What I say is right and wrong. And so we just don't talk about those things. We shrink the what's. 
So we'll shrink the what's we'll, uh, and, and oftentimes this is done in the name of, you know, tolerance, where it's, you know, we're going to tolerate each other, which really, which oftentimes can just mean, you know, we're not going to talk about those things. In fact, implicitly, those things aren't really that important. They're just your opinion anyway. So we shrink our what's. We shrink, we have a small circle. We, maybe we have a big circle of the people we're talking, a big circle of who's we'll talk with, but we have a small circle of things we're actually willing to talk about. But Paul doesn't do this either. Paul engages with these people in Lystra with totally different backgrounds than him. And they, they, they come and they say, oh, you are Zeus and Hermes. And Paul doesn't say, well, that's true for you. You know? <laughs> Paul says, no, you are confused. That is not following those make-believe gods is not the way to life. I want to tell you the way to real life. I want you to be able to have a friendship with the living God of the universe. And Paul goes on to, to talk about the living God of the universe. He talks about how they've encountered that God in tangible ways through food and joy. But Paul maintains a big circle of what? His what's. And I think that also raises the question for us. How big is our circle of what's? How big is our circle of what we're willing to say, what we're willing to talk about? Or does that shrink down in the name of tolerance or in the name of not rocking the boat? So uh, kind of to summarize, Paul, and I believe following in the way of Jesus, Paul, he, he, had this, he had this passionate love for Jesus and this passionate love for people who didn't yet know or follow Jesus. And, and that led him to have a big circle of who's, to have a relationship with all sorts of people that saw the world differently than him. But it also led him to be very honest about how he saw the world, to have a big circle of what's, to talk honestly about who he believed the living God was and, and how God had revealed himself in the person of Jesus and what it meant to have friendship with this God. A big, big circle of who's and big circle of what's. <clears throat> There's a... Uh, there's a fiction story that deals with some of these topics of tolerance, kind of not talking about things, or, or Christian love, being in relationship and yet engaging with these topics. There's a, there's a fiction story called The Ball and the Cross, written by an author called G.K. Chesterton. Any, any Chesterton readers in here? Chester, you should check it. His stuff, a lot of it's free online now because it was written in the early 1900s. It's good. He's got really good fiction, some good nonfiction. If you want a recommendation, I can tell you a few. But The Ball and the Cross. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's a, this story, The Ball and the Cross, is about a Scottish Christian by the name of Evan McKeon. Evan McKeon is a Christian uh, who comes in contact with this Englishman who's an atheist by the name of James Turnbull. So Evan and James, this Christian and this atheist, they get, uh, they get talking and they get disagreeing with one another. Uh, Evan believes that James, the atheist, has insulted Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this does not sit well uh, with Evan. And so they get arguing about this and it comes to the point where they challenge one another to a duel by sword fighting. So, as you do, and... Uh, so they challenged one another to do it. Well, the, the larger society, uh, represented by the police and the press, the, the police say, oh, no, 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 you are not going to have a duel by sword fighting. We are going to arrest you before you have a duel. 
So what happens is the, the story goes on, and they, so they say, oh, we are going to have a duel. And they run off, they run away from the police, and they try and set up the fight, and then the police come charging, and then they have to run away somebody else, and the police come, and then they get tired, and they have to have a meal together, and then they run, and the, the press show up, and then they're fleeing by car and by foot. And, and so it becomes this big, outrageous chase scene where these two are trying to have a sword fight, but the whole time the police and the press are trying to stop them from having the sword fight. And as you might imagine, as the time goes on, what happens is that Evan and James, over time, they end up becoming friends. And they end up, in the midst of seeing the world very differently, they end up developing a friendship that that they're able to have even though they see things so differently. And it's interesting, Evan in particular, the Christian, um, has to, um, we see this this real change on whether, on his thinking about... um, do I engage people who think differently with the sword? Or maybe I should engage with them and trying to persuade them through loving words and the, the, kind of this evolution. But it, it, it ends up and they, get, they end up escaping into an insane asylum and, and hiding in and a saint shows up. And you should read it to see how it ends. It's a different kind of book. But Chesterton is dealing with this idea of he was dealing with this idea of, of a world that is telling him at the time, and I think oftentimes today, that tolerance means let's not really talk about these things. Let's not talk about these, these things that we really disagree over. Um, let's just avoid that. Avoid those kind of disagreements altogether just to keep the waters calm. And instead, Chesterton puts forward these two characters to say, hey, there's certain things that are worth giving your life to, and they really matter. And Christian love doesn't go the route of tolerance, of avoiding them. Christian love actually goes the route of hospitality. And true Christian hospitality invites the other, the one we're disagreeing with, that who invites them into our life and engages with them and speaks honesty, honestly with them and also listens honestly with them. Christian, Christian love invites the other into our, to be in relationship with them and to be honest about the things we disagree with as a big circle of who's and a big circle of what's. And we do this, we do this, uh, uh, because this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. This isn't uh, some task arbitrarily given to us by our God, but this is the way God has interacted with us. This is the way God has rescued us. That Jesus had the biggest circle of who's imaginable. When you read the story of Jesus, you see him, he's engaging with men and women, the very, very rich and powerful, and the very poor. He's engaging with the very religiously scrupulous, and he's, and he, and he's engaging with people involved in organized crime and the sex trade. He's involved in, Jesus is engaging with all sorts of people. He's having dinner with them, inviting them to table with him. In fact, it, Scripture says that um, every one of us can be considered, uh, before we, we surrender to Jesus, we're considered enemies of the living God in rebellion to him. But while we were his enemies, he invites us. He invites us to the table that he can, he says, come and be in relation. Let me forgive you. I invite you in. Jesus has the biggest circle of who's. And he also has a biggest circle of what's. Jesus doesn't say, when, when we're in that place, he says, but you can continue thinking and living however you want. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He says, come, let me forgive you. Let me offer you forgiveness and friendship with God. Come and follow me. 
the way of Jesus, the way he rescues us. He has this big circle of who's, all men and women, even when we're enemies with him. And he has a big circle of what's. He says where we're at, and he on the cross reaches out his arms to forgive us. This is the way of Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, we live this way also uh, because, because we get captured. We get, he puts his spirit in us. We get captured with the same kind of love. I mean, that's what we see in Paul. Paul gets Paul is so he is he is, he is so um, about loving Jesus, so about loving the people Jesus loves that he ends up his life takes on that same shape of having a big circle of who and a big circle of what. I guess uh, I guess what I'd like to end with is just that the image of uh, of Jesus. Um, Jesus as our host. Jesus as the host at the table. I mean, the, iron, the, the ironic thing is the very thing the people in Lystra were wanting, the gods come down to earth, was the thing um, that Paul came to tell them. God did come down to earth. And he didn't come down to earth looking for hospitality. He came the one being the host. And he didn't come down to earth looking to destroy. He came down looking to forgive. Jesus, the Son of God, he is the host who says to friend and stranger and enemy, come to my table, come and eat. My body is real food. My blood is real drink. Be forgiven, be fed, receive eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, would you give us more? Uh, a more of a vision of who you are and a more of a vision of your world. Uh, Jesus, I recognize in myself, um, Jesus, I just confess that uh, I recognize in myself these tendencies um, to, to uh, shrink my circle of who I want to be in relationship with or, or to just avoid topics out of fear. Um, I recognize that. And uh, Jesus, I confess that. And Jesus, for all of us, would you accept? Uh, would you accept our confessions of, "Hey, this is where we feel like we're not following you obediently," and we know that we're forgiven already. We know that you're with us, empowering us. Uh, may we be powered by your Spirit, empowered by your love, not out of guilt or out of fear, but may we be. May we catch that same love of you and of the people you love that Paul had. We pray this in your name. Amen.